to reasonable doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. We have a debate for you today between Ed Brayton and Tim Schmig. The topic, is the United States government founded on the Christian religion? Ed Brayton is the founder and owner of the Free Thought Blogs Network and the voice behind the popular blog Dispatches from the Culture Wars. He is the co-founder and past president of Michigan Citizens for Science and the recipient of the Friend of Darwin Award from the National Center for Science Education and has appeared on The Rachel Maddow Show, The Tom Hartman Show, and C-SPAN. Ed Brayton will be arguing for the resolution that the government of the United States is not, in any sense, founded on the Christian religion. Arguing against that resolution is Dr. Tim Schmig, the executive director for the Michigan Association of Christian Schools. Tim Schmig has taught high school history, social studies, government, and economics for five years in two different Christian schools. He holds a doctorate of literature and ministry from Maranatha Baptist Bible College. Tim spends much time in Washington, D.C. and Lansing meeting with elected officials and has earned respect and garnered influence on both sides of the political aisle. The debate took place on November 12, 2014 at CFI Michigan in Grand Rapids. Reasonable Doubts would like to thank Ed Brayton and CFI Michigan for letting us share this debate, and a special thanks to Mike Slomka for helping capture the audio. Reasonable Doubts will be back with another regular format episode on December 15th. Until then, please enjoy the debate, and leave any comments at www.doubtcast.org. Resolved that the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. Now, some of you will no doubt recognize this as a direct quote from the Treaty of Peace and Friendship between the United States and the Kingdom of Tripoli in what is in modern day Libya. That treaty included that language in Article 11. It was negotiated under George Washington, ratified unanimously by the Senate on June 7, 1797, and signed into law by President John Adams. Now, it's rather unusual for the resolution of a debate to contain evidence for one side uh, in the resolution, uh, but I would submit that this could not be seen as anything but that. I won't rely on this uh, a lot. I have many other lines of evidence. But the fact that the first two presidents and the Senate, still made up of many of the men who have break the Constitution, unanimously gave their approval to a treaty which under the Constitution is deemed part of the supreme law of the land, that included that language is, I think, self-evidently evidence in favor of my position. Before I get to evidence, more evidence in favor of the resolution, I think it's important to spell out what this debate is not about. The resolution specifies that the government is not founded on Christianity. So this debate is not about the individual religious views of the founding fathers. It's not about whether the culture is influenced by Christianity, clearly it is. It's not about the scope and meaning of the First Amendment, uh, the religion clauses of the First Amendment. So any arguments offered uh, on those subjects simply will not be relevant to the subject of this debate. This debate is about the government, and therefore primarily concerns the sources of the ideas found in the Constitution, 
the document that created the American government. And it is there will I, that I will begin the rest of my argument. Uh, the resolution itself will call that observation one. Observation two. If the Constitution were based upon Christianity, we would expect that it would say so. Previous government charters in the predominantly Christian world, including most of the charters of the colonies and state constitutions, then being passed, contained explicitly Christian language. But the Constitution did not. In fact, Dr. Schmidt himself pointed this out in a talk he gave on the subject that you can view online. Speaking of the Mayflower Compact, which he calls the first written document of government in American history, true, he said, the opening words are, quote, in the name of God, amen. The founding fathers, the pilgrims, were covenant theologians. They believed that they were making a vertical covenant with God in the name of God, amen. Now that kind of language is completely missing from the U.S. Constitution. At the very least, the advocates of the Christian nation position should be able to point to specific provisions in the Constitution and then analogs in the Bible or in historical Christian theology. Uh, I submit that this is not the case. Observation three. The lack of, explicit, of language explicitly acknowledging God or Christianity was a matter of great controversy at the time. Many prominent preachers and pamphleteers uh, railed against the passage of the Constitution for that very reason, claiming that the lack of explicitly Christian language would bring down God's wrath upon the nation. Uh, Aristocritus, uh, the pseudonym of a very prominent pamphleteer in Pennsylvania, pamphlets were the way people made arguments in the 1770s and 1770s. Uh, Aristocritus uh, wrote many public missives urging the rejection of the Constitution because it did his words, quote, it disdains belief of deity, the immortality of the soul, or the resurrection of the body, a day of judgment, or a future state of rewards and punishments. Another anti-federalist writer in Boston quoted the Bible to warn of the dangers of passing a Constitution that did not acknowledge our dependence on God, citing a passage in the book of Samuel that says, quote, Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee. Massachusetts anti-federalist Charles Turner declared that without the presence of Christian piety and morals, the best Republican Constitution can never save us from slavery and ruin. Indeed, the only documents in 1787 and 1788, the only public documents, that referenced the Bible in regard to the debate over ratifying the Constitution were made by anti-federalists who argued against the passage of the Constitution. Observation four. Oops. I missed one. Observation four. It wasn't just that the anti-federalists complained about the lack of Christian language in the Constitution. Attempts were made at several of the uh, state ratification conventions to amend the Constitution, particularly the preamble, to fix what they viewed as a prominent defect in that document. William Williams, a delegate to the Constitutional, sorry, the Connecticut Ratification Convention, proposed that the preamble to the Constitution be rewritten to say the following. We the people of the United States, in a firm belief of the being and perfection of the one living and true God, the creator and supreme governor of the world, in his universal providence and the authority of his laws, that he will require of all moral agents an account of their conduct, that all rightful powers among men are ordained of and immediately derived from God. Therefore, in a dependence on his blessing and acknowledgement of his efficient protection, in establishing our independence, whereby it has become necessary to agree upon and settle a constitution of federal government for ourselves, and in order to form a more perfect union, and then the preamble continues as it is. 
That amendment was rejected, as were several other similar amendments at other state ratification conventions. So it was clear to the people at the time that the Constitution was a secular document intended to establish a secular government. And the efforts to add a Christian nation amendment of that type didn't stop there. After the Constitution was written and ratified, there was an organization called the National Reform Association, the original NRA, uh, that pushed for a Christian nation amendment uh, about a dozen times throughout the 1800s. Uh, the, actually, the last time that was attempted was in 1980. It didn't go very far. None of those have ever passed, uh, of course. Uh, it was only in the early 20th century that some Christian historical revisionists did a complete 180 and began to claim that instead of claiming as they had for a, nearly a century and a half uh, that the Constitution was a godless secular document, they suddenly began claiming, no, it was supposed to create a Christian government all along. Uh, but they saw at the time that the Constitution was ratified that it was not. Observation five. John Adams, the second president of the United States, wrote a three-volume set called A Defense of the Constitutions of Government of the United States. In discussing the U.S. Constitution, he wrote this. The United States of America have exhibited perhaps the first example of governments erected on the simple principles of nature. And if men are now sufficiently enlightened to disabuse themselves of artifice, imposture, hypocrisy, and superstition, they will consider this event as an era in their history. It will never be pretended that any person employed in that service had interviews with the gods or were in any degree under the inspiration of heaven. It will forever be acknowledged that these governments were contrived merely by the use of reason and the senses. Now, I dare say he was a bit naive. Today it is indeed pretended that the men who wrote the Constitution had interviews with the god and were under the direct inspiration of heaven. Finally, observation six. There is no mention of the Bible or Christian theology as influences on the writing of the Constitution in the Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers are a collection of about 80 essays, more, a little more than 80, uh, written by Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay, and published in newspapers. They were intended to explain and defend each specific provision of the Constitution so, to the people so that they would support its passage during the ratification convention. Not once is the Bible or Christian theology mentioned as a source for any of the ideas found the Constitution. Now bear in mind, they were writing for an overwhelmingly Christian population. If they had been able to make the argument that the Bible supported these provisions of the Constitution, it would have been very persuasive, and it certainly would have helped them achieve their goal. But the ideas found in the Constitution, concepts like checks and balances, separation of powers, religious and political liberty, did not come from the Bible. They came from classical and enlightenment philosophy. Adams himself, in the document that I just mentioned, encouraged his readers to read the works of the men whose ideas influenced the Constitution, and he explicitly names men like Machiavelli, John Locke, Algernon Sidney, and Plato. Thomas Jefferson named a few others, including Montesquieu and Cicero. They looked not to the Bible uh, as a blueprint, but to the city-state of Athens, to the early Roman Republic, and to those who provided the intellectual support for those early experiments in democratic rule. For these and many other reasons, I stand to affirm today's resolution and to assert that the government of the United States is not, in fact, founded on the Christian religion. My name is Tim Schmidt, and assisting me is Josh Hirschberger. We're speaking for the negative on tonight's resolution that the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. 
I'd like to thank Ed Brayton for the invitation and the Center for Inquiry for hosting and providing a format for the debate tonight. I understand that discussions on this topic can sometimes be difficult because they affect what we believe about our past, which in turn has ramifications about where we are in the present and where we're headed in the future. Although we may approach this subject from different viewpoints, I know that we're both interested in historical truth. You know, 25 years ago, I could have been sitting at, where, at Ed's table where Justin is sitting. I taught my students that the founders were primarily deists and secularists. However, once I started looking at the monuments, the manuscripts, and the founders' writings, I came to a different conclusion. In preparation for this, someone asked me if I thought it would be difficult or if I should be concerned. And I just want to know, do we have any teachers here in the audience tonight? Any school teachers? Okay. How much more difficult can it be for me than what you do every single day walking in front of your classrooms? Again, I've been looking forward to this time. Our proposition tonight is that the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. And by that, we mean established on. We argue that this means what principles underlie the principles and the people that gave us that government because our government, our founding documents, the Constitution says we the people. So let me summarize our definition. The formal federal government of the United States is not, according to this meaning, established on a belief system of those who profess belief in Jesus Christ. Here's my thesis for the evening. Although the Constitution did not establish a state church or formally affiliate the United States government with a religious sect or denomination to establish the government on religion, Christian principles did significantly influence the formation of the American Republic. Consider it the example like an experiment. Abraham Lincoln referred to the American government as an experiment in liberty. Certain enlightenment, certainly enlightenment philosophy was a part of the formula or a catalyst in this experiment. And we certainly acknowledge that. However, we argue that Christian thought and principles were also part of the formula and a major catalyst. Perhaps the percentage of enlightenment influence versus biblical influence can be argued. However, the historical record firmly rejects the notion that the American government was in no sense founded on the Christian religion. As an opening example of Christianity's influence on the American government, consider a letter written by Ben Franklin to the Reverend Samuel Cooper. Now, as you know, Franklin was not always friendly to preachers. Franklin wrote to Cooper, Your excellent sermon gave me an abundance of pleasure and is much admired by several of my friends who understand English. I propose to get it translated and printed at Geneva at the end of the translation of your new constitution. Nothing could be happier than your choice of a text and your application of it. What sermon would cause a rational man like Franklin to pen an enthusiastic and almost cheerful letter like that? Dr. Cooper's sermon, which was preached to the governor, the Senate, and the House of Massachusetts, the day their constitution went into effect and compared it to the Old Testament Republic of Israel with that of the American states. So Franklin wanted to attach a sermon as an excellent commentary to the Constitution. Now moving on to the Treaty of Tripoli. There are several facts about the treaty that are often ignored by modern scholars. The facts give it an entirely different view of the documents important. So let's unpack the wording of the treaty. First, the full text of Article 11 is extremely important. That the government of the United States is not in founded on the Christian religion. 
as it is in itself no character or enmity against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslimen, Muslims, and the said states never have entered into any war or act of hostility against any Mohammedan nation. It is declared that the parties have no pretext arising from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption of harmony existing between the two countries. So let's look at the text in context. There is a distinction here, not between, as we are discussing here tonight, an American government heavily influenced by Christianity or an American government founded heavily on secular rational thought. Rather, the comparison is between an Islamic theocracy in which the religion is the state, the state is the religion, and an American federal government that has no official religious side but is influenced by religious principles. It's also important to notice that this treaty was not negotiated, was not written at all by an American, but rather by the Bay of Algiers, uh, writing to the Pasha of Tripoli, in a marginal note. There is no uh, Article 11 in the original document as negotiated by Joel Barlow under the direction of, of Ambassador Humphrey. And additionally, this treaty was negotiated under duress because American sailors were being held for ransom and because the American Navy was at a severe disadvantage. The Treaty of Tripoli, when you read it, reads more like a divorce settlement rather than a love letter. The treaty was not intended to describe America. Rather, it was intended to settle a disagreement, a disagreement in which the United States suffered from a severe disadvantage. The U.S. faced tribute requirements and attacks on American shipping by the Barbary pirates of Tripoli if this treaty was not signed. Additionally, between 1796 and 1799, the United States was involved in a Cold War with France, the XYZ affair. The United States Senate did not, nego- did not have any negotiating power. They could only adopt the treaty or reject the treaty. This was a political necessity. Eight years later, when Thomas Jefferson negotiated the Treaty of Tripoli, after sending sailors to liberate uh, the, uh, to the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, when he negotiated that treaty, Article 11 disappears from it. It's not there. So the fact that the federal government was not formally affiliated with the state religion. In the case of Everson v. Board of Education, the court had access to both the Treaty of Tripoli and Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists. The court failed to even cite the treaty as proof of its claim. In contrast, when you take a look at the Treaty of Paris, which has the signatures of Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and John Jay when they signed the treaty, this treaty starts out in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. So, should we use a treaty that was not <coughs> drafted by any founding father to define America, or should we prefer one that was negotiated by three of the founding fathers? Treaties simply are not the best sources for describing the American founding. Moving back to the general founding of the United States, the facts prove that our founding was significantly influenced by Christianity, that the United States were in some sense founded on Christian principles. Think of the Declaration of Independence. Though there certainly can be discussion about when America was founded, there are some strong religious and economic interests in the colonies. I will begin at the signing of the Declaration of Independence. It states, it is assumed among the powers of, of the earth a separate and equal station. I'm certain you're aware of the language of the Declaration of Independence, the references to nature's God, a creator, and providence. These are often cited as vague general terms. However, many Orthodox Christians use such terms, such as in the Westminster Standards and Common Statement uh, uh, common statements of faith. As far as the Constitution, remember our premise 
that, the, that Christianity significantly influenced the founding of our, our country. This is true for the Constitution. The Declaration of Independence was our birth certificate. It tells who we are. The Constitution is our operating manual, how we will act. The Constitution gave us a limited purpose, to give federal powers to the government, Article 1, Section 8. The Declaration of Independence had already established our identity as America. The Constitution simply explained its operations. This is not a treatise on the motivations for a form of government the Constitution established. Rather, the Constitution was a practical handbook. The Bill of Rights simply reinforces, once again, some of the principles of the Declaration of, the, uh, of the Independence. It was said that there is no ideologically is explicitly cited in the document. Although there are no direct Bible references in the Constitution, there are no direct references to Montesquieu, Hobbes, Locke, Reed, and Spinoza. We're not making an argument that they had no influence. Therefore, it should not be argued that the Bible had no influence. Consider even your own life. Do you expressly state your worldview in every activity that you do? Is it even necessary to be a good Christian or a good free thinker? When Donald Lutz examined the founding documents, looked at over 15,000 pamphlets, he stated that the Bible is a primary source, more than any other source for our founding fathers. Remember the early Americans were so biblically literate that in the letter Thomas Burr, that Ben Franklin states, he says, when I reprint this treatise, I will have to put the Bible references at the end of the treatise, because in Britain and in France, they're not as biblically literate as they are in the United States. Thank you. First question. Uh, Dr. Smith, would you consider, if you met someone today and they said to you, uh, I believe in, uh, I believe in a God, but I reject the idea that Jesus was anything but a man. I reject the idea of original sin. I reject the atonement. Uh, I don't believe that anyone was ever resurrected, uh, etc. Would you consider that person a Christian? I would say that that, that person probably in their personal beliefs would, would probably say, I'm not a Christian. However, they may have a world where they may, may make statements that would be in alignment with a... But Christian. would you consider them a Christian? Would they, you say, that's my Christian brother, if they reject the divinity of Jesus? No, I wouldn't. Okay. Um, in the... Uh, in your original uh, response to uh, my statement about the treatment of crippling, they state that uh, and you're right, this was, of course, an attempt to contrast it with Islam and all of that, but um, the argument that it wasn't in the original, it wasn't in the Arabic version, right? Well, according to the, um, the documents that the Senate had in the Senate journal, <coughs> it says that the original, or the treaty had not been typeset yet, so they're looking at the original version of what they have. And uh, in Miller's notes on that, when the ambassador gets over there, he takes a look at the copy, both in Arabic and in Italian, and he says it's an extremely poor translation. So the Senate, I don't believe, according to the Senate Journal, doesn't have a typeset yet, so it's not in English that they're looking at. It was actually read in, in its entirety on the floor of the Senate before the vote for ratification, and it included Article 11, yes? Yes. And it was printed in newspapers around it and included Article 11. So the, the, the version that the Senate ratified included Article 11. Yes, it did. Okay. Um, why do you think the authors of the Federalist Papers, I mean, you make an argument that, well, we don't always name our sources. But surely, if you're writing for an overwhelmingly Christian population, 
Right. And you're writing to them saying, here are all of the reasons why you should adopt the Constitution. Certainly it would have made their argument much stronger and more persuasive if they could have said, we got this idea from the Bible. Right? Yes. I believe in taking a look at the writings, when you take a look at many of the correspondence back and forth between each other, they will cite a biblical passage. And I think because they're so biblically literate at the time, they don't say this is John 3.16 or Romans 3.23. Could you say for me which provisions of the Constitution you think are based on the Bible and where that's found in the Bible? Checks and balances, separation of powers, judicial review, is any of that found anywhere in the Bible? The, uh, I would say that um, when we take a look at, at this, Humans are sinful people, and they're, well, I believe humans are sinful people, and that uh, checks and balances need to be there to stay some powers, that checks and balances are a provision that I would find in the Bible, a principle that I would find in the Bible. Um, I think God would We're done with our time, it's your turn. Oh, okay. All right, thank you. i take a couple of minutes. Just a couple of questions for you. Number one, are you familiar with Kramnik and Moore's book, The Godless Constitution? Yeah. And what is your opinion of it, as far as scholarly um, research? I think it's generally pretty good. I think there's a few pieces. I think it's generally pretty good. Generally pretty good. Uh, I've noticed, as I take a look at some of the things that you put online and some of your debates, you live, really, in, in research and scholarship. Does it bother you that at the end of the book there's no footnotes in there? That it says we dispense with the academic apparatus of footnotes in this? Yeah, I mean, it was a book written for a popular audience. Uh, although, you know, I'm writing a book, I will certainly have footnotes in mind. Okay. Uh, but I was familiar enough with most of the material that it wasn't a bigger problem for me. I knew where they were, what they were talking about. Okay, and in Kramnik and Moore's book, um, when they state, the, when they make the statement that Ben Franklin presided over the Constitutional Convention, did you even notice that that was an error in, or inaccurate? Uh, no, I just don't think it was presiding. He was certainly there. And then, um, in one of the statements that I that I was taking a look at, <coughs> do you believe that at the time of the Constitution that there, that there was any biblical references given during the debate of the Constitution? Um, most of them were actually uh, from the anti and there may have been a few instead ratification conventions that I'm not familiar with. Um, we will get into the left study in my rebuttal. I'm actually quite happy to be brought that up. Um, because, and well, I can do it later. I'll explain it in my rebuttal. Okay, because at the Constitution, when Ben, Spank, when ben Franklin spoke, he said, uh, in, in opposition to any proposal that tended to debase the spiritual or common people, we should remember the character which the scriptures requires of rulers, Franklin notes. He said, invoking Jethro's qualifications, that perspective Israelite rulers, that they should be men hating covetousness. That would be Exodus chapter 18 and verse 21. So Franklin was engaged in a substantive debate with specific constitutional provisions, and he appealed to a biblical standard. So I would say that there were biblical references. There, there may have been here and there, uh, okay. but both the public debates are not there. Okay, thank you. Uh, I will use the here. Uh, I'm going to go kind of in reverse order of the arguments that he made in his uh, first speech, beginning with the Lutz study. And I, as I said in my cross examination, I'm actually quite happy that he brought this up. I wouldn't bring it up myself if he hadn't. 
The Lutz study was written in 1984. Donald Lutz, who was a historian then at Rice University, and it was published in the American Political Science Review. The study was called The Relative Influence of European Writers on Late 18th Century Political Thought, which looked at exactly what it says. European Enlightenment writers, like Locke and Montesquieu and so forth. And what he was trying to find out was, uh, what is their relative influence in terms of how often they were cited in political debates in the United States in the late 1700s? Now, it wasn't actually 15,000 documents, it was 960. He started with a group of 15,000 documents. He whittled it down to 960, which were actually used in the study. And they range from 1760 to 1805. Now, that study has been quoted many, many times uh, by advocates of the Christian nation position, but uh, I think they have distorted uh, what it says. And I actually have a copy of this study with me, uh, if you'd like to see it. Now, first, he says that this, that this uh, study was, um, whoops, I don't continue here. He says that this study was the, shows that the Bible was the most important influence of the Founding Fathers. But the 916 documents were not documents written by the Founding Fathers. A few of them were, some of them were. But what they were of was public documents that addressed political subjects. Pamphlets, newspaper articles, that sort of thing. Um, and it was between 1760 and 1805. But he also broke it down into specific time periods. Now, one of the important things about this study is this. About 10% of the documents in that study, about 90 of them, were sermons that were reprinted as pamphlets. In those days, that was very common. Uh, very well-known ministers would give a sermon, and then it would get reprinted as a pamphlet and put out. 34% of the, of the references found in this study were of the Bible. 75% of those references were found in reprinted sermons. So what the study actually found was ministers quote the Bible a lot. <laughs> Not a big shock. Most importantly, Lutz breaks down his study to the specific period when the Constitution was proposed and ratified, 1787 and 1788. And during that time, he reports, the citations of the Bible almost disappear completely. Of that time period, he writes, the Bible's prominence disappears which is not surprising since the debate centered upon specific institutions about which the Bible has little to say. The anti-federalists do drag it in with respect to basic principles of government, but the federalists' inclination to enlightenment rationalism is most evident here in their failure to consider the Bible relevant. It goes back to what I said in, my, in uh, I think, in my original speech, um, which is that the Bible says almost nothing about the provision of the Constitution. And when I asked him in cross-examination uh, if he could name one, like it's sort of vague idea, well, we need the checks and balances because we're sinful people. But the founding fathers didn't say that. Um, they didn't cite that as a reason for checks and balances. Certainly they recognized, of course, that human beings are prone to uh, you know, factionalism and so forth and prone to looking out for our own interests and not for others. Of course, that's a good reason to have checks and balances. But you don't need to believe in the Bible to do that. And there is no evidence uh, that this had anything to do with it. Um, now, another argument he made was that there are no that the founding fathers didn't reference Montesquieu, Locke, or Spinoza in those in the Constitution either. That's true, but they did mention those people in the Federalist Papers, which explained the sources of the Constitution. They specifically named John Locke, Algernon Sidney, Cicero, uh, Montesquieu, and many other Greek, Roman, and Enlightenment philosophy sources. So, no, they didn't say that in the documents themselves. They didn't footnote. This comes from. But when they explained them to people, they said, this is where we got it. We got this idea from John Locke. We got this idea from Elder. I said, 
And they said this many, many times. So not once did they say, we back this from the Bible, because they can't. The Declaration of Independence. Of course, the Declaration of Independence was written by Thomas Jefferson. It was edited by John Adams and Ben Franklin. When I asked Mr. Schmidt across examination if he would consider somebody who rejected the divinity of Jesus and most of them were other Christian doctrines, if he would consider them a Christian, he said no. Well, all three of those men rejected almost all the Christian doctrines. They all believed in God. They were not atheists. There were virtually no atheists at the time. In this country, at least, there were some in France. Uh, they did believe in a God, but it clearly was not the Christian God. The, doc the references in the Declaration of Independence to Creator and Nature's God and Providence, these are very generalized references. Because Jefferson, when he wrote it, knew that he had to appeal to two different groups of people. Most people in that day, including most of the founding fathers, were generally Christians of one type or another. But there was a very strong group of people who were deists, or I prefer the term theistic rationalists, and he knew that he had to appeal to both of those groups. And so he chose language that both of those groups could see what they wanted in it. And that's where the language, I think, of the Declaration of Independence comes from. It's not explicitly Christian language. Um, on the treaty with Tripoli, he argues that the language, first of all, that the language compares the Muslim theocracy to American principles. This is generally true. Um, he says it was written by the Bay of Algiers. It was actually written by Joel Barlow, I believe, um, or at least the translation of it, with some negotiation. Of course, treaties are never written by one person. They're negotiated. Um, he also says that Article 11 was not the original. Remember during the cross-examination, I asked him, this was the, that Article 11 was in the version that was read to the Senate when they ratified it. True. It's the version that was published in newspapers, so it's what the public understood was part of the treaty. True. So the Senate, which included many of the same men who had written the Constitution at the time, the version they ratified unanimously contained that language that the United States government is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. That's really the only thing that matters for my argument. Whether it was in the Arabic version or not, doesn't matter. The version they voted for had that language in. And then finally, the last argument, the, the, the Ben Franklin letter to Samuel Cooper. Um, now, he, he, in that letter, uh, Franklin praises a sermon that has nothing to do with the subject of this debate. That letter was written in 1781. When we were under the Articles of Confederation, there wasn't even any consideration of writing a constitution. Uh, so it didn't refer to the U.S. Constitution. All I was talking about a state constitution. Um, the U.S. Constitution is what we're here to debate. And the U.S. Constitution contains no language whatsoever to indicate that Christianity or the Bible was the source of any ideas. Thank you. One of the things that... Yeah, actually, yeah. One of the things that Ed said was that the Federalist Papers do not reference uh, any sort of biblical reference at all. And I would say this, that John Jay in Federalist Number 2 mentions providence three different times. And he talks about blessings by the hand of the Almighty God. One of the things that Benjamin Franklin said, and when we take a look at our founders, we take a look at them in totality, uh, their lives and the, their writings of they wrote voluminously on many different subjects. Somebody once said that if you torture the founding fathers long enough, you can get them to say almost anything that you want. When you take a look at Ben Franklin, he wrote a letter to the Gazette. And in his letter to the Gazette, one of the things that he said was, he encouraged the, the ratification of the Constitution. And he said those who opposed ratification of the Constitution would be very similar to, similar to those 
that opposed Moses in the Old Testament and resisted having a law. So we, we take a look at this, and when I think of the government of the United States, which is in no sense founded on the Christian religion, this uh, insert in the Treaty of Tripoli and written when, under duress when our sailors are being held for ransom by the Barbary pirates, the Senate had no, really, literally no option but to ratify that treaty. Now, one of the things that I would like to go back to is when we talk about the, the government of the United States, it is we the people. You cannot divorce the Declaration of Independence and the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence from the document. And so I would just want to take a moment and look at some of the people who signed the Declaration of Independence and their lives, what they thought, the worldview that they had. How many of you recognize people in this? This is a painting that's in the rotunda of the Capitol building. It's called The Presentation of the Declaration of Independence. These were men, uh, typically when you look at that, if you ask the average person who you recognize, they would say Franklin and Jefferson. And often that is used to say... Um, <coughs> Well, all of the founding fathers were like that. This painting shows 47 of our founding fathers. And I just want to point out a few of them in the worldview that they had, that they brought to the table when they were negotiating, when they were uh, presenting uh, discussion and debate for the Declaration of Independence, and some of them carried over into the Constitution as well. The premise that the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. Our founding document is the Declaration of Independence, given to us by men who were really influenced by a biblical worldview. I would take a look here. We don't have, I don't have a laser pointer, but if you take a look at the third man from the left there, that's John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon, the only paint, the only person in the painting painted in his ministerial robe. Thank you. The only one in his ministerial robe. This is what Witherspoon, this, this was a guiding philosophy that he had. He said the Christian religion is superior to every other. There's not only an, an excellence in Christian morals, but also manifest superiority in them to those which are derived from any source. Another one of the founders, Samuel Chase. Now this is this is a person who would have been at the time of the Declaration of Independence. He goes back to the state of Maryland. He serves in the Maryland Supreme Court and in a ruling of Runkle B. Weinmiller, Justice Samuel Chase rendered the court's opinion. Religion is of general and public concern. And on its support defend in great measure the peace and good order of governance, the safety and happiness of the people. By our form of government, the Christian religion is the established religion, and all sects and denominations of Christians are placed upon the same equal footing and are equally entitled to the protection of their religious liberty. This is one of the things that sent me on this journey. I take a look at the original handwritten document of Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. Jefferson comes to this paragraph right here where he says, we hold these truths to be. And in Jefferson's original writing, he puts sacred and undeniable. Surely that sounds like somebody who is espousing a Christian worldview uh, is something that, that would be obvious. And this is Ben Franklin's <laughs> crossing it out and writing in self-evident there. Another, uh, Now, I'm not in any sense and not making all of, <coughs> all of the founding fathers to be born-again, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians. 
That's not accurate for history. That's not accurate for the story that, that needs to be told. This is a founding father, Charles Lee. In Charles Lee's will, he requested not to be buried within one mile of a Baptist or Presbyterian church. <laughs> he said, well, you can copy this. He said, I kept bad company while I was alive and do not wish to change. <laughs> so I look at that and I just say, I can celebrate all of them for what they gave us and, and for the government, the documents, the people that they were. John Quincy Adams, <coughs> the son of John Adams, speaking at a 4th of July celebration uh, in 1821, made this statement during the speech, and I think John Adams would be one who would have some knowledge as far as uh, the founding documents, the men that were there, the early Supreme Court ruling. He said the highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. This is Charles Carroll, one of my favorite founding fathers. He's the only one to put his home address on the founding document. He puts Charles Carroll of Carrollton. When asked why he would place uh, his hometown there, he said, so that King George knows where to find me when he comes looking. <laughs> Charles Carroll, near the end of his life, when asked, do you have peace with God? Are you ready to die? He says, on the mercy of my Redeemer, I rely on the salvation of his merits. Not in the works I have done in obedience to his precepts. Roger Sherman from Connecticut. <coughs> Sherman makes this statement. He says, I believe there is only one living and true God existing in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The same in substance, equal in power and glory that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are revelation from God and a complete rule to direct as to how we may glorify him. Benjamin Rush, one of the youngest signers of the Declaration of Independence, a man who participated in the American Bible Society, the American Tract Society, and the American Sunday School Movement, Rush made this statement. He said, My only hope of salvation is in the infinite, transcendent love of God, manifested to the world by the, by the death of His Son upon the cross. Nothing but His blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So when I take a look at the totality, Certainly it's not my intent to make them up to all be Christians or to say something that they hadn't said. But I would say this. When you take a look at our founding documents, the Constitution goes back to the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence takes many of its ideas from the state uh, declarations that were there. Thomas Jefferson, when you visit his grave at Monticello, one of the things that he's most proud of listed on his grave is that he gave the Virginia Declaration of Religious Liberty. These were men who understood the time, who understood the community that they were serving in, the nation that they were forming, and their original, our Constitution, Declaration of Independence, comes from state charters going all the way back to covenant. So I would say that the evidence truly is that we are a nation that was founded on Christian principles. Thank you. I want to reiterate something I said in my initial speech. This debate is not about the individual religious beliefs of the founding fathers. Not about whether the culture is influenced by Christianity, clearly it is. It's not about the scope and meaning of the First Amendment religious law. It's about the source of the ideas found in the Constitution, which is the basis for our government. Uh, and many of the arguments that have we heard tonight are on those subjects which simply uh, are not relevant. I want to go to a couple of the new arguments that he made. I want to start with the treaty with Tripoli. Um, and he did state this in his first one, and I missed it. 
He said that the, that the Senate was acting under extreme duress because they were the court risk. Now, that's true. But he also said, and he was right, that Article 11 was not in the Arabic version of the Constitution. So they weren't under some pressure to adopt that treaty with that language in it, but they did, unanimously. And I think that's at least one very strong argument in favor of my position. Uh, in his last speech, he said that the Declaration of Independence was our founding document. No, I'm sorry, it wasn't. It was an explanation of why we needed to fight the revolution and overthrow uh, the, the king, but it did not create our government. It's an important document, certainly, very important document. And I actually do think that it should be used to, to, to aid our interpretation of the Constitution. Uh, I disagree uh, with Justice Scalia with that. I agree, by the way, with Justice Thomas, who takes that position as well. I do think it's important, but it did not create a government, and that's what this debate is about. Uh, he said that uh, Witherspoon, the Christian, yeah, not so not relevant to the subject of this debate. Um, the sacred and undeniable, he's right about that, and he put the, the text up there. When uh, Jefferson originally wrote the Constitution, he said that he used the term sacred and undeniable rather than self-evident. Um, and he said that his argument was that this means that Jefferson had a Christian worldview. Well, no, I don't think it does. He already admitted in this cross-examination he would not consider Thomas Jefferson a Christian. Uh, Thomas Jefferson referred to the God of the Bible as cruel, vindictive, capricious, and unjust. He called the writers of the Gospels a band of dupes and impostors. He called the Apostle Paul the first great corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. Not only did he believe that Jesus was not the Son of God, he argued that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, and that the Apostles who wrote, the people who wrote the Gospels lied about that. Um, so, with only 30 seconds left, uh, I think the evidence presented so far is absolutely clear. While most of the founding fathers were indeed Christians of one, to one degree or another, along with a handful of very uh, influential uh, theistic rationalists, there is no evidence at all that Christianity is the source of the ideas found in the Constitution, which is the subject of this debate. All of the evidence that I have argued is, in fact, to the contrary. Thank you. In conclusion, I do want to thank Ed again for the opportunity to participate in this debate. And while certainly we differ on some of the things, I think the overall thing is we're both uh, in a search for historical truth, and I can certainly appreciate that. Now, I would say this. Ed did admit that we were founded on some Christian principles. We just disagree as differ as to what, what and how much. One of the things that I've noticed when I've looked at the life of Thomas Jefferson, and you can say that there's trend lines in his life. Um, he does things like the Virginia Declaration for Religious Liberty, which calls for uh, religious liberty for those who believe of various degrees. But then as he gets near the end of his life, as he's founding the University of Virginia, when you take a look at those letters written by Thomas Jefferson, that's when he gets his most vehement denunciations of Christianity. He's trying to hire a professor at the University of Virginia, a man by the name of Thomas Cooper. Cooper is a known infidel. And the Presbyterian pastors in Virginia tell Thomas Jefferson, if you hire Cooper, be assured we will not be sending any more students to the University of Virginia. It's during this period of, of his life that I find that Jefferson writing his most vehement denunciations of Christianity long after you know he's off the scene as far as influence with our founding and founding documents as well. Now... In preparing for this debate tonight, all of us live under some great meta-narrative for our life. And 
When I thought about this, I thought it's an opportunity like the Apostle Paul had in the book of Acts to go to Mars Hill to discuss ideas with people who may not agree with them, but at least to get those ideas out there for discussion. And I appreciate your invitation. For me, one of the things that um, changed my life is when I became a Christian. When I go to the Washington, D.C., to the Library of Congress, you stand in the main reading room, and you see a tremendous, beautiful room, probably one of the most beautiful rooms in all of Washington, D.C. <coughs> There's a statue that's a statue of religion. Above the statue of religion, you will see this verse. It says, He has shown you, man, what is good, and what did the Lord require of thee? And then you read these words, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. To do justly, to be fair with the facts, to be fair with what's out there, uh, to not read into something that's not there. And I tried as best as I could to do that. To love mercy, to be a kind and considerate person to others, and to walk humbly with thy God. In this world, none of us have all of the answers. None of us can, can come to a a point where on this subject we have the final word. That's the beauty of the debate. It's open for discussion, maybe another time and another place. Thank you. All right. Now to the most exciting part, right? Q&A. All my questions will be directed at Tim. Uh, Tim, first question, what form of government is the United States of America? I believe it's a constitutional republic. That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what what do I get? I mean, come on. Okay, Tim, question, which Christian God is the one that they were referring to because you question how many Christians and you'll come up with not exactly the same answer. So which Christian God were they referring to? I think if you go back and you take a look at the time of the American colony, the green-saturated country, uh, preachers, country preachers, uh, circuit-riding preachers, crisscrossing across uh, the early colonies and then the states. I would say that it would be the, the Christian God of the New Testament. Is, is that what we're talking about? And that's what I would say. There's, a, there's, there's all different offshoots of Christianity. So I'm, I'm asking which one uh, would be, in fact, the God that because they don't all. I mean, they don't all acknowledge the same. Exactly the same God. So I'm just saying, which one would they have been designating as the God, the Christian God? Well, and, and I would say, in in the slides that I showed, they did talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. At other times, they talked about Jehovah. Um, so I would say, the Christian God of the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ, is what I would say, the Triune God. Um, you were making the point when you when you were talking about the uh, all the different personalities that were there writing the Declaration of Independence, and that they were Christians, and implying that they couldn't do an act then that was intentionally secular, because that what someone is, it becomes what they do. So, what would you believe about if we were to elect? 
a Muslim president of the United States, then would he be unable to act in a secular manner? Would his would this become a Muslim state? I guess I would say this, that it simply isn't true that just because you have a religious belief, therefore you can't have any idea that isn't based on that religion. Um, and certainly if you look at some of the people at the time, I mean, some of the most prominent advocates of strict separation of church and state were Baptist ministers. John Leland, Isaac Baptist. Because in all the state-established religions, the Baptists always found themselves in the short end of the state. So, so they were very adamant that the government should stay out of religion completely, because whatever the government got involved, they ended up going to jail. Um, so no, I just don't think, I don't even think that someone's a Christian means they have to take a particular position on, on um, any political issue. The Pledge of Allegiance was written by uh, a man who was a Christian socialist. You can be Christian and be virtually anything else politically. Same thing with atheism. You can be an atheist and be a Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, libertarian, fascist, anarchist. That's, that's the great thing about our country, is the fact that you are entitled to your religious beliefs and still be a prominent citizen in this country. I, Except we can't see you getting elected from office. <laughs> that's, that's messaging and marketing there. And, and I would say this. <coughs> When I take a look at the documents that we got, I, I look at other countries that have constitutions. And I wonder, like of the ones that are purely secular, say Albania, Russia, France, where do they have a First Amendment that guarantees religious liberty for their citizens? And I look and I think, we are blessed, however you parse the word, to live in a country that just have a meeting like this tonight without fear of interference from government to have a free form of ideas. I, I think that's a great opportunity that we have. But I think it's important to point out one of the things that Jefferson and Madison both argued was that there wasn't a single example of an officially Christian nation through 1,700 years that had religious freedom. Uh, so their constitution was in fact a radical break with a century of history of Christian theocracy that denied religious freedom not only to non-Christians but to the wrong kinds of Christians, including in our own country. I mean, in Massachusetts, the Plymouth Bay Colony, if you were, it's not just that you had to be Christian, you had to be a Puritan. If you were a Baptist, or a Quaker, or a Catholic, you could be thrown in prison, you could be fined, you could be exiled, you could be put to death, and many people were. The state of Rhode Island, the colony of Rhode Island, Providence Plantation, was uh, founded because two Baptist ministers got thrown out of Massachusetts. Uh, because they were the wrong kind of Christian. Well, when they were thrown out of Massachusetts, one of the things that, when they take, took a look at Massachusetts Bay Colony, um, what they said was, they looked at the government and they said, look, you're enforcing a first tablet of the law, Commandments 1 through 5. Government has no right enforcing that tablet. Uh, government deals with 6 through 10, man's responsibility to man. And when they left and went to Rhode Island, one of the first things that they did is... Uh, first of all, make sure that they had a proper government. And then the second thing that they did that was unique and interesting is as a Baptist colony, they bought the land from the Indians. They compensated them for it, which had not been done prior to that. And <clears throat> when Roger Williams writes back to Massachusetts after he's been exiled out of Massachusetts, he writes the famous uh, ship letter. 
And in the essence of the letter, he says, many a sailor goes, to, goes off to sea on a ship, 100 people on the ship. He says, on this ship, there's Papists, Mohammeds, uh, Protestants. And he said, the captain may call a prayer meeting, but nobody is compelled to go to that prayer meeting. And it's Roger Williams that gives us the seed of religious liberty and tolerance that we see manifested in later documents and practice in the United States. He actually is one who invented the, the, the metaphor, the wall separation. of separation, separation yeah. the wilderness of the state from the, the wilderness of the church. Uh, this question is for Dr. Schmidt. Um, I was raised in the holiness background, and we had a lot in common with the Baptists in that they were very much for separation of church and state. And even among our holiness group, there were many dominionists. They believed that Christians should take over the government and we should have a Christian theocracy. What confuses me, or what makes me wonder, is back then, all the people in the 60s and 70s who were advocating for that were never went to the government documents to look for their justification, but to the Bible alone. And since David Barton and all his ilk are coming through, there seems to be a strong... Um, need a strong desire to find Christian foundations within the documents rather than the Bible itself. Do you know why that would be? I mean, I'm just kind of puzzled that they're looking for justification of Christian theocracy within the government rather than the Bible. Well, I, I would say this in trying to answer that is we all have an obligation to be involved in our government. It's one of the great rights that we have in citizenship. As a Christian, we're told that we're supposed to be salt and light, have some influence, to have some uh, say in what our elected officials are doing. Now, I will tell you this on a personal note. uh, The time that I spend in Lansing and Washington, my primary message is just leave us alone. The worst thing you ever want to hear is, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. You know, not a good play. And I think, personally, one of the things that you're seeing is in history there's ebbs and flows. And we take a look in the early founding. Uh, I think we were awash in Christian thought, in uh, Christian preachers, things like that. Then we come to the late 1800s and you get the Franco-Prussian influence of higher criticism and secularism. And I think we see society with pushback on these different things. Uh, people make inroads on things, and somebody in a community says, whoa, we're getting taken advantage of, we need to start having some more influence, therefore all of us in this group or community get involved in your government and get out there and do something about it. And, you know, you see these things going back and forth. Uh, there's cycles that ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys in history that we see all the time. As far as Really, I don't know that I want Christians running the entire government. Um, no. <laughs> and the reason for that is, you know, we have enough disagreements among ourselves. And I, I just think that there is, uh, there, we have great opportunity to have a voice and to have influence in our, in our government, so use it. And I would encourage every one of you be involved in the process. I'm amazed at how many people I talk to, they're unhappy with something that goes on in the government. One of the first questions that I ask them is, what's the name of your state representative? What's the name of your state senator? When was the last time you talked to them? 
how can you have influence with somebody that you have you don't even know what their name is? So get involved. Let me just add one thing to that. I think the the influence of people who truly are dominionists tends to be a little overstated by people on our side of this. Um, I, I mean, yes, there are genuine you know, Christian Reconstructionists um, and, and, and Dominionists within Christianity, but I think they're a fairly small percentage of them. Uh, they're very loud, so we may think there's more of them. Uh, but I think we tend to use that term Dominionist in far too broad a manner to mean anybody who thinks that, you know, that their religion can inform their their policy positions on something. I don't think that's a really way to define that term. Now, one of the things that Ed and I talked about before the debate, we've got Justin over here, I've got Josh over here, and I asked if it would be okay if they could answer the question. And if it's all right with you, I'd like to have Josh add on to that answer. I just wanted to jump into this because I, I come from a religious family. My father was a minister. I'm a constitutional attorney now. I'm also a student minister at the church, so kind of an interesting perspective. And growing up, I certainly saw some of that influence with, we just need to take everything back. And I'm afraid that at times in the church community, we stop looking at our fellow man as someone to reach out to and love and more of an enemy, in a sense. And perhaps that can be... that, that can be a fair charge against any movement, that at times we begin to see our fellow human beings as someone to be hated or fought, rather than to someone to be reached out to. As a Christian, my main motivation should be love. And certainly I'm going to have perhaps some ideas that may be different than yours, or different than Mr. Brayton's, on particular issues. Um, but as I'm looking at the, the board in the back, I'm, I'm thinking about one of my nonprofit clients recently, that just set up a food bank at 26 different churches, and we're now feeding a thousand families a month uh, through that food bank. And I see some of the things that you're doing, uh, and so some of the these things we, we actually are, are closer together in some of these efforts than perhaps we think because of the culture wars. Um, so as a Christian, because my main motivation is love, and certainly I believe that I believe in the truth, I believe in the truth of the gospel, but that would motivate me to reach out to others and pursue that in the public sphere like I would in every area of my life. And as Mr. Smagas stated, we're also encouraging someone of any thought. And as Mr. Brayden pointed out, in so many years of Christian history, the United States is certainly a unique government and that there was no established state. Many of the states had established religions, the last one abolished in 1832-1833 in Massachusetts. But in the United States, we have the freedom to believe whatever our conscience dictates and to go live that out in everyday life. And so I, just moving these circles to, I guess, more specifically answer your question, I'm hearing much more of that rhetoric, where we need to love other people, to reach out what we believe in into every sphere of life. But I think I'm hearing a little bit less of we just need to take over everything so that no one else has a voice. So that was just a... And answer the question one down. That's a great place, by the way, to plug the Grand Rapids Year of Interfaith Service, uh, which is going on, which is going on right now. What's that? No, um, Yeah, so that's going on right now, and, been, and certainly people here from churches in the Grand Rapids area, we're all about working together on those things. We may disagree on intellectual things, uh, but we agree we should be helping other people. Without a doubt. <coughs>
couple of things. First of all, uh, you, you mentioned uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony can be imprisoned for believing the wrong things. It might be helpful to remember when we do the, the Fox News War on Christmas thing in the Massachusetts Bay Colony for many, many years, you've been thrown in jail for celebrating the holiday of Christmas. I knew in the original war on Christmas. I was also pleased to see the amount of content about Don Lutz that you had here because I studied constitutional design and, and uh, political theory with, with Don at the University of Houston many years ago. Uh, one of the big eye-openers for me, and you talked about you know, looking at Roger Williams and sort of the threads of how intellectual ideas propagate uh, through constitutional documents become part of government. One of the big eye-openers for me was, was comparing we hold these truths to be self-evident that all people, well, men, are created equal. Uh, and looking back at the idea of equality in Thomas Hobbes, whose ideas influenced John Locke, uh, did, did you ever read a bit about equality and also about popular sovereignty in chapter 13 of the Leviathan? And also, have you read chapter 12 of the Leviathan and what it says about religion? That's right, all right, I suggest you do. See, this is this is why I brought Dustin up here. He's not just a pretty face, but he's the philosophy guy. <laughs> My question is for first of all, thank you for a respectful and civilized debate. I appreciate that. I think it's very helpful and educational to everyone. And uh, I think uh, I think we have to draw distinctions sometimes, and sometimes the semantics is what causes a lot of problems. And you made a couple of statements that I think we can fully agree with, which is the influence of Christianity upon the Constitution uh, in the family. Whereas I think some people interpret uh, when that term Christian nation comes up, there is no real definition of what that means. And uh, some people think it means that, well, Christians want to make everyone Christians or you can go to jail. And that's can not you, the typical can Christian you would ask you what yeah. specifically I said about Christianity and its, and it's you said influence? Because I... When he said in his last speech that I had admitted that Christianity was an influence over the Constitution, and I thought, no, I just spent the entire hour in the game. I said, Christianity was certainly an influence on our culture. No question about that. Okay, I'll accept that. But I read what you said the other, but that's not Okay, no, I, I mean, I, 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 I argue mean, very vociferously that Christianity was not an influence over the Establishment is what I thought you were talking about. Anyhow. Uh, let's, let's get beyond that. And when we talk about Christian, you know, there's all kinds of people who call themselves Christians. Some other Christians wouldn't say they were. Tell well, us. yeah, you guys argue about that a lot. We do. As an atheist, I don't believe <laughs> 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 Jefferson called himself a Christian, although I wouldn't call himself. I wouldn't call him a Christian. And, um, and what we talk about, it's better for us to talk about is what's biblical rather than everybody that calls themselves Christian. And uh, I would go to um, ask you this question. Uh, and within the Constitution, let's just go to the text itself. Uh, why does Article One, Section Seven, uh, give the President Sundays off? And why does it in uh, Article Seven? Why is the Constitution dated back to the birth of Christ? And and as an add-on to that, it also dates itself back to the Declaration of Independence earlier, which is the I know this, <laughs> which is the founding of the country, so the Declaration, I believe, is a founding document. So I'd just like to hear your perspective on those things. Thank you very much. Well, I would say that the Declaration is a document of great importance to our founding, but it didn't actually found anything. It didn't create a government. Um, and I am one of the people who thinks that we should use the Declaration of Independence as a lens through which to interpret the Constitution. Now, that's a pretty controversial position in constitutional law. 
Um, Justice Scalia, I think I mentioned this, Justice Scalia thinks that's just a horrible idea, that the Declaration should be completely ignored. Justice Thomas, on the other hand, argues, takes my position, and it's not very often that I find myself in agreement with Clarence Thomas. Uh, what I do on that. Um, as for the, those social women, I guess you give them Sundays off. Uh, they didn't know. Not that he gave the president Sundays off. What it said was that uh, if it's a certain time to, to, to sign a bill, Sundays didn't count. Um, that's just a social convention. If you're in a population that is 98 or something percent Christian, and they're all going to be off on Sunday because they consider that the Sabbath, well, then you don't count that early. Same thing with any year of our work. That was just a standard way that you, that you dated things. It still is the standard. That, that's Christian influence. No, of course not. That's, but that's, that goes back to this idea that Christianity is clearly an influence on our culture, on our language, certainly true. But there's zero evidence to suggest that it's an, a source of ideas in the Constitution. There is virtually nothing in the Constitution that you can point to, with the exception of the Sundays, which again I think is just a social convention, that can be traced back to the Bible. And that's what's germane to the topic of this. It's been a, a good, I think, conversation, civil conversation, and that's the way it ought to be. And, to catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.